You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. My name is Roger, the associate pastor here. I've got some good news for you guys this morning. Do you want to hear it? Okay, then I will keep on going. As he said, we're in this sermon series called TGIM, Thank God It's Monday. Now, this is also just assuming that you've got a normal job that starts on Monday. I know many of us begin our, our, our work weeks on other days of the week, but you understand the idea here. Today, um, I've got some good news for you in a message that I've called Bringing God Glory in Your Workplace. And, uh, and our main text from the Bible today is going to be in a book called First Peter, um, it's one of the letters that Peter wrote to a whole collection of churches, and, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you've got Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up and turn to 1 Peter 2. Um, if you've got an app on your phone, go ahead and open it up there. I encourage you guys to read along with me. Um, this is what Peter writes to the churches. We're starting off in verse 9 of, of chapter 2. <clears throat> he writes this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Why don't you pray with me? God, we, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your scriptures that have just been faithfully written down and preserved and passed along and, and translated for us that we can understand them. We thank you that through them that we can come to know what kind of God that you are, that we can see how it is that you work in this world, and that we can see ourselves more clearly and, and, and how it is you have called us and what it is you have made us for. And, and I pray especially today that you would give us ears to hear um, what that means for us, wherever it is that we spend the bulk of our waking hours throughout our weeks. God, we invite you into those places. And we, and we just pray now by the power of your spirit that you would talk to us. God, I pray that your voice would speak much more loudly than my own today, that each person hearing this, whether live right now in this room or online or at some point in the future on the podcast, that every single person would just hear something from you that's timely that they really needed to hear. And we, we look forward to that, Lord. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so in 2007, I'm going to tell you guys a little story here. In 2007, my wife Angela and I moved from Augusta to Chapel Hill, North Carolina to plant a vineyard church. And we served there at Greenleaf Vineyard Church as, as co-senior pastors for 13 years um, up until this last year when we moved here and I came on staff as associate pastor. Um, now, for the first three years um, of, of planting a church, I did what many, many church planters do, we both did, in fact, is that we were bivocational, right? Um, there were certain seasons where we were actually like tri-vocational and things, because that's just what you do. Um, but the first job that I had moving there um, was I was a full-time middle school Spanish teacher. So I did that full-time, and then like about 20 to 25 hours a week, I was doing church stuff, because that's also what you do when you're young and foolish and when you don't have children, right? You can do that sort of thing. Um, but this job turned out to be just one of the greatest blessings. Um, 
Uh, one of the things that happened is right next door to me in the school uh, was an eighth grade, I was in the eighth grade hall, and it was an eighth grade social studies teacher named Chris. And he was, first of all, he was a fabulous teacher. I learned a lot from, the, from him. He was also just a really affable guy. One of, those, one of those guys that everybody knows him, everybody loves him. And, and what happened is it must have been in the first month or two of the school year, um, the bell rang and the kids all rushed into their classes and we had a shared planning period. So we ended up just standing out in the hallway and everything's quiet and, and we're just chit-chatting for a few minutes. And, and I noticed that he was holding like a book, you know, kind of under his arm. It's kind of a thickish book, you know. Um, and I like books. So by way of kind of keeping the conversation going, I was like, oh, hey, you know, what are you reading? And he holds up this book um, and it's a book called The God Delusion. Anybody familiar with this book? Right? Anybody want to own up to having read it? I will. So this is what happens. He's like, oh, it's a book called The God Delusion. Um, and it's, The God Delusion is written by a guy named Richard Dawkins, who is quite possibly the most famous atheist in the world. And this is probably his most famous book, right? And he's like, I'm reading The God Delusion, and I'm reading it for my book club. And I'm like, ooh, that sounds really fascinating. I'm so interested. Tell me more. And he says, well, hey, do you like to read? Yes, I do. Are you interested in joining my book club? I said, am I? <laughs> now, pause, just to be fair to Chris. He had no idea at this point. I just never had the opportunity to tell him why we moved to North Carolina. So he didn't realize that he just invited like a Christian pastor to his atheist book club. I was like, sure, absolutely. So I, I went up the road and I actually, I, I checked out this book. I'd rented it from the, the, the Duke Divinity Library, right? It was a good divinity school. They got all kinds of things. And so I read the book. It was really, really fascinating. I hesitate to just like give like a blanket recommendation for the book. But I will say that like, if you're the kind of person who likes to think about such things and you like to learn about different perspectives that folks have in the world so that you can have um, clear and very understanding conversations with them, then, then I suppose I would recommend it, right? But so I read this book and it comes down to the day of the book club. And some of the people in the book club I had met, I came to find out some of them already worked at the school with us. A few were just other friends from around town. And uh, we gather in this guy's house, this guy named Mike, um, Mike, as it turned out, was a former teacher at the school and now is doing other things with his life. And I think he had selected the book because we sit down and there's maybe seven or eight people total in the room and, and we sit in his living room and, in a circle and I'm sitting here and Mike is directly to my left and um, he says, hey, so, so glad you guys are here. Everybody read the book. This is really great. He said, to start off, I just want to ask a question. And he asked this rather personal question and he said, I want, I want to go, just go around the circle real quick and everybody tell what number you are. Now, what he's referring to is Dawkins in his book, and I had already noted this and I found it really interesting. He has what he would call like, like his scale of belief, right? And so if you think of belief in terms of like atheism all the way on the other end of the spectrum, you have theism, that everybody is on some sort of spectrum, right? That we're somewhere along here. So this is, this is what he's referring to. And, and so just for, for sake of you guys understanding what's about to happen in my story, I'll go over these with you really quick. All right, so if you're a one on Dawkins' scale, you are a strong theist, meaning you would say, I do not question the existence of God. I know he exists, right? Like Carl Jung would say. Um, if you're a two, um, Dawkins would say, you are a de facto theist, meaning I, I cannot know for certain, but I strongly believe in God and, and I live my life on the assumption that he, he is there. Uh, then he, you could be what he calls number three, a weak theist. I'm, I'm, I'm very uncertain, but, but I'm inclined to believe in God. All right. Then kind of right smack dab in the middle, he has what you would call a pure 
um, or a pure agnostic, right? Someone who just doesn't believe in anything. I I don't know whether God exists or he doesn't exist. Um, Both of those are exactly equally improbable, right? Um, Then if you keep going on the scale, you could be a weak atheist, number five. I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improbable. And, or no, I do not know whether God exists, but I'm inclined to be skeptical, right? Then six, a de facto atheist. I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improbable. And I live my life under the assumption that he is not there. All the way to on the other end of number seven, I am a strong atheist. I'm 100% sure that there is no God. So I sit down in this group and Mike asks this question. And I'm like, oh, shoot. And it starts with Mike, starts with Mike, and it goes around the room. And Mike goes, I'm a six. And I was like, oh, shoot, right? Six, five, five, seven, six, four, six, five, and it gets to me. Like, literally, the, the lowest that any one single person was on the scale was a four. I remember there was definitely one four, and there was definitely one seven. Everybody else was fives or sixes. And so I just said, well... I guess I'll be the black sheep in the room because I'm a one. And like jaws hit the floor. There were audible gasps. There were audible gasps of disbelief. I remember Mike laughing. This guy I just met like just guffawed in laughter because he just could not believe that a person would say that, right? And, and, and I just said, yeah, you know, as nonchalantly and as cool as I could, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm 100% that God exists, I'm sure. I know that he exists. And by the way, I should tell you guys, I'm actually here to start a church, right? That's when I just kind of like let it out. <laughs> now, from there, the conversation was amazing. The conversation was amazing. And it was amazing because I wasn't there to fight with anybody. I was there to ask questions. I was there to answer questions if people had them of me. I was there to hear different perspectives and to share my, book, my perspectives as well on this book. This book club went on for another three years. And every couple months, we would read another book, and someone would suggest another book and suggest another book. Most of them were not at all about anything religious, but they were just really, really wonderful reads. Um, and, and that book club became one of the most fun things I've done in the last 15 years of my life. And slowly, over time, there was eventually some like, amazing fruit that came to be born, which I'll tell you guys about a little bit later. But here's, here's the big idea, why I tell this story, and what I think the Lord wants us to hear this morning from this short little passage in 1 Peter. And, and I see this more clearly now in my story, much more than I did when I was in the middle of it. But it's this idea, is that a clear identity shapes a way of living that generates more glory for God. It just does it. A clear identity shapes a way of living that generates more glory for God. So first thing we're going to look at from 1 Peter is Peter kind of lays out these, these four um, aspects of our identity. It's almost, it's almost like he's holding up a gem and turning it around. Or more specifically, it's like he's holding up like a diamond ring, like an engagement ring. And you know how you can turn it around in the light and, and the light will hit it in different ways and the light will bounce off of it with different colors. It's like this is what he's doing with our identity in Christ. Now, it's really important, before we look at these four things, I want to point out something about these really two simple words that we read, these words, you are, all right? And I think this is really key to grasping this whole thing. Um, This you is plural, all right? If you really dig into the linguistics of this, this you is plural. It's really easy to read it as like, you are, and you think, oh, great, I am, right? But really, it's not I am, but it's we are. He's not addressing individuals. He's addressing um, the collective. This is not about me. This is about we this morning. 
And, and so for this reason, I am going to break a decades-long rule that I've held for myself. Um, my parents just left the room, so I feel even safer in doing this. Um, I've had this decades-long rule. I, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in San Diego. I refer to that as the motherland. Um, unabashedly, it's the greatest place on earth. I had a really hard time when we moved to the South. Um, didn't make a lot of friends right away um, because I created just such rules for myself out of just unnecessary sheer rebellion and, and totally unhelpful like cultural superiority. As, as I swore, I would never say y'all. <laughs> but this morning, I'm going to humble myself before you and I'm gonna say y'all several times because it is the most accurate translation of what Peter is saying here, all right? So we're gonna talk about not you are, but y'all are. It's weird. I practiced this sermon twice this week and that felt so much easier, like not in front of other humans. It's all right. So, but Christian, this is important because Christianity is essentially a communal faith. Our, our individual identities are only truly found and supported within our collective identity, never outside of it, right? So Christianity is a y'all faith. So here's number one. Y'all are a chosen people, right? As Peter says in verse 10, we used to not even be a people at all, but now we are a people. We used to have no significant collective identity, but in Christ we do. We've all been issued the same call. We're bound together with the same communal identity. And what's more is he's saying, y'all are chosen, right? Like hand-picked. This is not an accident, Right? This gathering of people is not incidental to the call. It is essential and core to the call. This didn't happen because it was a part of our 10-year plan. How many of you in your 10-year plan decided, I'm going to become a part of a collective people called the church? None of us. It's a terrible idea because we're so weird and we're so different, and none of us really should be hanging out in the same room other than that we have Jesus at the center, right? Right? And it just happens. You don't know that when you're signing up to follow Jesus, but you find out later on, right? And so we, we all accepted this call. The significance of who we are then is much bigger than who I am. The fact that we are called and chosen is much bigger than I am chosen or called. God, God was not interested in a chosen person he wanted a chosen people. God didn't just want you, he wanted y'all. If you're a chosen person, it's because you're a part of a chosen people. The father is not content to have one son or daughter over for dinner at the end of the age. He wants all of humanity around his table. He wants all y'all. There's bigger, right? It's even more plural. I know how it works. I got some linguistic roots. I know how it works. All y'all is bigger than y'all. He wants all y'all around his dinner table celebrating. The second thing, he says, y'all are a royal priesthood. Now, this is maybe kind of the weirder ones because in America, we don't talk much about royalty, right? Our, the closest we come is celebrities, and that's just not a road we want to go down. But royal meaning like, like uh, the highest honor, just, we are chosen and placed into this thing that has the highest honor. It indicates that this is a sacred vocation. It is a sacred calling. This is that he's about to talk about. It's not just any other career path, right? 
Peter, Peter wants us to understand the honor this comes with. And he says that we are a priesthood. Again, we don't talk a whole lot about priesthood, especially like in Protestant churches, right? But what the priesthood is about is it's all about function. And the function of a priesthood is really rather simple. It means the priesthood serves as mediators between God and people. Meaning we do two simple, real, really simple things. We, we communicate what God wants to communicate to people. We communicate his heart to people. And then we do everything we can to open wide the doors for people to respond back to him. We're kind of like just the doorkeepers, you know? We, we open up the doors so his message can go out and we keep them wide open so people can rush in when they want to respond. That's the priesthood, right? This is why we talked this morning about everybody gets to play. Right? Reach already preached as part of the sermon for me, so I'll go on. But, but our job as pastors is not to do the spiritual or religious work for you. Our job, according to Ephesians, is, is to equip you all, all y'all, for the ministry. Because God has, has an incredibly and highly honorable ministry for you to do in like a myriad of creative and, and varied and spirit-inspired ways in all of the diverse contexts in which you live and work. He has ministry for you to do there. And again, God isn't looking for a royal priest. He's looking for a royal priesthood because he knows that there are far more needs to be met in the world than any one of us could ever meet. One priest wouldn't be enough. This is partly why, why Christ had to ascend to the Father, and then now we are called the body of Christ, because that body of Christ, that priesthood of believers, had to spread throughout the entire world. It's a whole lot of fun. It's a whole lot of fun. So y'all are a chosen people. Y'all are a royal priesthood. Y'all are a holy nation. Um, holy can sometimes have a lot of weird connotations. I think it's helpful for us to understand holy simply just means set apart, Right? It's like, it's for a special purpose. You got like all the normal things in life and the normal things you use, and then you have some that are just really special, right? That special china that you only pull out for like Christmas dinner, right? Because this, this belonged to your great grandma, right? That, that stuff, in that sense, in a familial sense, is holy, it's sacred, it's set apart, you know? We don't microwave our burritos on it. <laughs> that was not in my notes, but that's good. Somebody tweet that. <laughs> We're set apart for God's own purposes, not our own purposes, not anybody else's purposes. We are holy to him. And, and this word nation too, this is a nod towards this idea that our true citizenship is in God's kingdom over and above any other earthly kingdom, over and above any other earthly nation or country, political party or tribe or whatever. We are his citizens. And again, God does not want a holy citizen. He's not interested in a holy citizen. He wants holy citizens. He wants enough that it's a whole country because his desire is for an entire people group that are spread out over the entire face of the earth that live according to his politics, not any other earthly politics. I could get real preachy here, so I'm just gonna read what I wrote. I don't want you to miss that this is an intensely political phrase that Peter's using here. And let's not over-spiritualize it and miss the point. Peter is walking a very fine, subversive line here. Because in the Roman Empire, it was a dangerous thing, literally physically dangerous thing, to declare your own people as a separate nation. By saying they were a holy nation, Peter's effectively saying, our nation is set apart from whatever other nation we might live in. 
And further, it means that Jesus is Lord and therefore Caesar is not. And those words basically are what you'd call fighting words. And if you're gonna issue fighting words to the Roman Empire, you better be ready to lose. And this is a timely message for us. I, I would humbly suggest that we ought to not be in the business of building a Christian nation. Anytime Christianity has tried to align itself with political, political power, it always goes a bit sideways. And it seems to me that maybe Christian is the wrong adjective to use. It seems to me that God is less interested in a Christian nation and more interested in a holy nation, which just carries some significant and different connotations to it. He wants a nation that is distinctly set apart from any other earthly political territory, which runs under an altogether different government and which exists for his purposes alone. We are citizens of God's kingdom, no matter what earthly country we may have papers for. Moving on. Y'all are chosen people. Y'all are royal priesthood. Y'all are a holy nation. And y'all are God's special possession. Again, Peter underscores that we belong to God and nobody else. Nobody else has claim on us, guys. And we are not special to anyone else the way that we are special to God. All the marketers want to make you think that you are, right? Special underscores the uniqueness and preciousness of us to God. Like, he already owns all things. This is good theology, right? All things belong to God. God possesses everything on earth, but we're special to him. You see this in the creation story, right? We are what he prizes more than anything else because we were made in his image and we were bought by the blood of his son. And note again, this is not God's single special item. It's not just, I'm God's single special item. But like, we're his special collection. My preciousness to the Father, your preciousness to the Father are inseparable from our preciousness to the Father. Note, this is why disunity so deeply wounds the heart of God. Now, a final quick word before we get into this way of living that stems from this identity, a quick word on our identity within community. We do not discover our true identity by diving deeper into our individuality. There's, there's like a whole like, like marketing industry based on this. It's a billion dollar industry, right? We don't figure out our true identity by just diving deeper into our own individuality, but by connecting with the community. This is because just, this is true of human nature, right? We do not discover our true identity by staring at our own faces in the mirror, but by being face to face with others in the gathered community of Jesus. We do not discover who we truly are in private, but in public in real life situations with real life people who, who I really know and who really know me. You know, it, it's, like, it's like me trying to, to understand and to live out what it means to be an Otero without ever really spending any quality time with my wife and kids. It just doesn't work. Over time, I, I will just simply lose touch with what it means to be an Otero. And not only will those relationships suffer, but my sense of self will suffer as well. We do not know who we are as people uh, separated from others in the world. And this is the family that God's given us. And so this is the importance of the regular gathering of God's people. It's why Sunday worship ought to be a pre-decided fixture of our weekly rhythms. If it's not, you're losing opportunities to really live into your true identity. And if you feel like you're wandering around and just flopping about through the world, unsure who you are, 
Maybe that's just one simple thing you can do. This is why we value small groups. Next week, you guys are gonna start hearing about what groups you can sign up for for small groups. I just encourage you to do it because it's another context that you can build in where it's real and it's face-to-face with the people who are called and have the same identity in Christ as you do. So again, we're talking about a clear identity shapes a way of living that generates more glory to God. Here's this way of living that Peter kind of teases out in these verses. First, this way of living means that you tell stories of God's goodness. Why did God include you in this call to y'all? He says, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It means that whenever we get a chance, we give God the glory with our words. We speak it out loud. You know, we are a worshiping people. This is, this is why we did this this morning, right? Do you guys realize, like, worship was good today, right? Thanks, guys. That was good. But here's the deal. Worship was not like the pep rally for the sermon. You know, it's, it's not just something, you know, like we blink the lights, you know, to like say everything's starting, you know, like the worship isn't just like an indication that like things are starting. It's, it's because we were meant to be a worshiping people and we're meant to be guided through saying things out loud with our voices that are true about God. If for no other reason than it reminds ourselves, right? You ever had that? You're singing a worship song or you're praying a prayer that someone is leading you in and you hear yourself saying it and you're like, oh. We worship God in song, we worship God in speech, and we tell stories from our lives. This is partly why I've started with this story about my friends in Chapel Hill that I'll finish in just a minute. Because we don't just give God praise in like weird abstractions, right? You know, it's far less, less, impa- less impactful to say, you know, well, God is good and gracious. Okay, thanks. Tell me a story about that. I had a story about that, but I'm gonna cut it short because I'm watching the clock but we tell stories about these things that bring it to life. This is why Jesus told stories and parables because it brings these truenesses about who God is into vivid reality. So we tell stories of God's goodness and of his greatness. And second, this way of living, Peter says, means that you fight for the health of your soul. This was a really curious phrase that that really kind of like was kind of rubbing me weird the last few weeks, Peter exhorts us to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It was striking that he uses such like adversarial language here. I'm not, I tend to not just be very motivated by like, like violence. I don't know. I'm not totally into like MMA or something. You guys can be like, that's cool. And so even when I read it in the Bible, that doesn't normally like jazz me or like motivate me. But he's using this because he knows something is really true. He's drawing our attention to the aggressive and destructive nature that our sinful desires can have on us. They are waging war against your soul. They're trying to destroy your soul. They're trying to put an end to your soul, the totality of who you are. And so if they can be described as waging war, then we cannot stand by as pacifists, right? Being a pacifist in the real world has some merit to it. Being a pacifist when it comes to what's waging war against your soul is highly unrecommended. This is why, this is why as a pastor, like, like, and some of you guys, if you serve on teams with me, you know this. At some point in time, we're going to be sitting down and we're going to talk all about business and we're going to make sure that things are working right and how's the team functioning and I'm all about systems and let's make some decisions together. And then at some point, I'm just going to stop and I'm going to get sick of all that and I'm going to say, hey, so but... How's your soul? 
couple weeks ago, I was having coffee with someone, and I looked across the table at him, and we're just talking, talking shop, talking business. And I said, hey, so how's your soul? And he about fell out of his chair. Like, what? What, what do you even mean? Like, how is your soul? I mean, like, the real you. Like, I don't, really, I don't care as much about the job that you're doing in the church. Like, how are you in life, in your family, in your job, in your relationship to God, the real you that sometimes is hidden down in there by all the flurry and busyness of life? And we had this great short little conversation, and there were some, like, little aha moments. Because more than I care about, like, the job that you're performing, I mean, we got to do decent job with stuff, but how's your soul? The reason is, is I know that there are things that are waging war against you. And if I can be an advocate, then I will, right? So we declare God's praises, right? We tell stories of his goodness. We fight for the health of our soul. And this way of living means do as much good as you can. I love that he says, like, live such good lives. It doesn't just mean, like, avoiding the wrong things, but also actively doing the right things. He's not just talking about abstaining, Right, to use Peter's word, it's not just about abstaining from unhealthy or damaging behaviors, but it means engaging in life-giving behaviors that keep our soul alive and that nurtures life in other people as well. You know, Christianity, like we often get a bad rap as Christians um, for being all no's and no yeses, right? We, we're much more known too often for what we're against rather than what we're for. Peter is saying this way of living is proactive engagement in doing Good. Just do as many good things as you can. Do as many good things as you can. All right, breathe there for a second. That's great, Roger. Somebody asked me, what on earth does any of that have to do with work? Thank you, that's a good question. I heard somebody ask it back in the back there. Right again, a clear identity shapes a way of living that generates more glory to God. Here's where we get to the more glory. And I wanna draw your attention to this strange little phrase. And maybe this stuck out to you when we were reading this passage earlier, where Peter says, among the pagans. When was the last time you had heard somebody use the word pagans? It sounds like a slur, doesn't it? It sounds like a cut down. Can we say that still these days? Am I about to get canceled, right? It seems like a word that we maybe shouldn't say. Uh, Now, first of all, I don't think that Peter just means this in some derogatory sense, right? He's not meaning this is just some like like low jab to people that that are not like him. Um, In the most literal sense, in the very just basic, most literal sense, pagan means simply polytheists, right? So on one level, Peter's just pointing out we as Christians stemming out of this new way that stemmed out of Judaism, we follow Jesus, we're good monotheists and the dominant religions of the day were all polytheistic. They all believed in multiple gods. And he's saying, so a notable distinctive is that we are monotheistic, whereas we would call them the pagans. They are polytheistic. Now, our our modern Western culture, it's not as obvious, but we have a collection of gods as well. I believe we are heavily polytheistic. Um, I'm just going to call out a few gods real quick. This might make you uncomfortable, right? Uh, We've got the god of materialism, whose temple is the shopping mall. We've got entertainment, whose temple is the plethora of streaming services that suck away all our time. Uh, We've got the God of power, whose temple is our government buildings. We've got the God of sex, whose temple kind of hangs out in all those other temples, right? 
Now, we can stop there. If anyone tries to tell you that we are not a polytheistic culture, it's because they've lost the ability to identify a God. But we are. So there's just, there's just pagans on the surface, right? Now, a little deeper, what, Paul, what Peter is saying is, is that within this context of identity, we can hear the word pagan as meaning those who have a different identity than the identity that you have in Christ. And the reason that they have a different identity is because they have not yet heard or understood that they were destined for that same identity. So this is not adversarial, us against them. He's saying, how can we help them with their polytheism and their misaligned identities understand that there is one God and they were chosen also by that God? He says, y'all are a chosen people and they are the ones who have not yet clearly heard or understood that God wants them as well. He says, y'all are a royal priesthood and they are the ones who need the ministry that only you can bring them. The ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about, right? The ministry that puts people back into right relationship with God and with themselves and with the entire cosmos. He says, y'all are a holy nation living by the politics of God's kingdom. And they're the ones who are still living under the illusion that the powers and governments of this world are the answers, but you can invite them to defect. You can invite them to change their citizenship. He says, y'all are God's special possession and they're the ones who just don't know yet how precious they are to their creator. Because God's special possession will remain incomplete and I believe that God will remain perpetually unsatisfied with his special collection until it includes all y'all, everybody. Now, so if this is the idea about pagans, here's my question. Where is it in your life, right? Talking about you individually now, okay? We got the big picture. You individually, where is it that you have the opportunity to live such great lives among the pagans? Where is it that you are hanging out in a whole lot of time around those who are functionally polytheistic? Where are you spending a bunch of time with people who don't yet know the identity that they were destined for? I'm willing to bet that for the vast majority of you, the really simple and obvious answer is in your work. Just where you work. Like right now, like let the faces of people that you work with, maybe they're your colleagues, maybe they're their clients or customers, whoever it is, just let them kind of wash in front of your faces. I'm willing to bet that there's a bunch of them that are these people. And Peter's saying, live such good lives among them. Why? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This whole business about a clear identity and this new way of living is, is, has one single overarching goal, that God will get more glory. And not just more glory from you, but more glory from other people that one day, like I hope my friends in North Carolina, one day when they see God and they understand who he is, that they will remember the way that I lived among them and they'll say, wow, Roger worshiped and served a great God. And we will not always see the fruit of our labors in his kingdom. Sometimes our work out in the fields, it feels like it's all sowing and watering and no reaping. But we can trust, guys, in the long, slow, hidden work of the Spirit. Sometimes we get this idea that if someone doesn't make this dramatic conversion to following Jesus right now in front of us, then we've lost, we've failed. But I think, I think Peter's hope here points way beyond whatever point it is in the future that we think is like too little, too late. If I can sort of reverse engineer what he's saying here, I think Peter's saying that when these pagans, 
among whom you have been living, finally see God. They will praise him as the one true God. And here's what we know is that no one can praise God without the spirit of God, meaning no one can praise God without having had some sort of conversion or transformation. And so that others, meaning they had been transformed into their true identity and praise God for who he is because of who we were while we were among them. Just living our lives, just being who we were. We, we will often only see little glories now, but one day we will see the full glory. Let me close by kind of telling you guys a couple little glories that I saw with my friends in North Carolina. If you fast forward a few years and a handful of books later, um, one day at the end of a book club meeting, you know, we all kind of close our books and kind of set them down and we're getting ready to head home. One of my friends turns to me. I remember it was kind of like abrupt. You know, one of those times someone's like, you, and you're like, oh, what? And she said, okay, Roger, I guess we'll read one of your Jesus books now. That's exactly what she said. What do you want to read? And I knew exactly what I wanted them to read. Like, yes, this is glory number one, right? If it takes a couple years for a bunch of atheists to say, like, we'll read your Jesus book, man, that's a win. That's a glory. We're cracking the shell a little bit there. And I knew right off the bat, I wanted us to read a book called Not the Religious Type, Confessions of a Turncoat Atheist, Right? Come on. It's by a, by a then vineyard pastor named Dave Schmelzer. I loved this book and I still love this book. And so then it happened. All my friends, my fives and six and sevens and the one four on Dawkins scale, right? They all read the book. Glory number two. That was a win. And it was a great discussion. And I, honestly, I'm not sure of the long-term impact that that had on any of them, but it felt just like the discussion that we had when we were reading Dawkins' book it still just felt like, okay, we're open. We're going to ask questions and we're listening to each other and, and we're learning stuff here. Now I'll tell you though, the, the, the thing that to me that was really like glory number three that still stands out to me. Um, I, had, I had lent my book um, to my friend Jessica. I don't remember why. It might've been because she was like, I'm not buying a Jesus book, right? So I lent her my book and she read my book and I remember getting it back. And in the margins, she had written something. Uh, and in, in the book, there's a story. Um, it's just some young lady had a huge need in her life um, who was an atheist, and she had this interaction with some Christians, and they challenged her to just, well, pray to God for it. And so she doesn't even believe in God. She asked God for this thing that was just out, outside of all possibility or probability, and it happened. And so this young lady became a Christian, right? And so my friend is reading this story, and, and she wrote, I don't believe this. That's actually not what she wrote. I'm pretty sure she wrote an expletive in there, Right? No way. I don't believe this. And then she wrote, but if something like this ever happened to me, I think I would have to become a Christian. I'm like, oh, glory number three. These are these little hints of glory that keep my years of sowing and watering in that field, keep me believing that they'll one day produce a harvest. Little hints that me living within my identity in Christ I was just being who I was. I was just being like me, knowing I belong to God, me who loves to read books, me who's interested in things like, like atheism and philosophy and religion and all these different things, me who loves having these kinds of conversations with people that I might strongly disagree with, me, me quite frankly, that just needed some friends. I just didn't have friends at the time. So I was like, sure, I'll join your book club. I'm so lonely. Somehow, just with all that, me just being who I was, results in this fruit. And again, 
I believe that one day when they see God, it will cause my book club friends to say, wow, what a great God. They will give him glory. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen.